Let's keep praying for another moment. Lord, I just ask now that you would take our hearts and you would open them to understand your word, that you would take us, Lord, to understand when we sing these different carols and songs that we would realize that we're also singing truth and that truth would penetrate our heart because we aren't just saying it, we're singing it. And so, Lord, may we understand who Jesus Christ really is in our hearts and in our world, we pray this morning. Amen. A group of people decided to throw a party to honor the birthday of a very special friend. So they sent out the invitations. They got their decorations and decorated the house where they were going to have the, the special party, the birthday party, and made lots of food. And all the people got together at the agreed upon time. Everyone showed up and they were all excited and ready. And, and then they realized an hour later after the start of the party, they kept waiting and waiting, but the guest of honor never showed up. So they started talking among themselves and they realized, embarrassingly, that they had forgotten to invite the guest of honor to the party. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine at Christmas that it might be possible that we would plan a celebration with lots of decorating, cooking elaborate meals, buying presents, and then somehow forget to invite the guest of honor whose birthday it really is that we are celebrating. Can you imagine ever doing that? So how do we keep Christ as the center of Christmas? Well, one of the most popular carols, some would say the most popular English language carol, is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Now, I know some of you immediately are going, no, it's not, it's Silent Night. But I've tricked you. That's a German carol. English carol. Of course, you know, hark the herald angels sing. You know, kids have different ways they hear things, and so this is hark, hark herald, the angel's going to sing to us. And while shepherds wash their socks by night and things. So, you know, it's easy to sing words, and, and as a kid, it points out, you know, that um, we often don't, don't even know what we're singing if it doesn't make sense. Sorry, I'm all discombobulated because Lou Caudill is sitting in the wrong seat. What is going on here, Lou? I just, you sit there. You don't sit in the back. I'm going to be a back row Baptist before we know it, and we'll have to reconvert you. But anyway, hark the herald, angels sing. The words were written in 1739 by Charles Wesley. You might have heard the name Wesley. This is the brother of John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist movement. But 1739, Charles Wesley wrote, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. And a herald is not a name. It is a, you're making an announcement of a message. And so Charles Wesley wrote things that you also know. How many of you know, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus? Several of you. Christ the Lord is risen today, even more, a few more. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. See, you know these hymns. And, and can it be that I should gain? So he wrote all of those and more. But, you know, Charles Wesley, he wanted a slow, solemn kind of uh, tune that would go with this, with this carol. And so he 
was disappointed. I don't know. Actually, he wasn't disappointed because it was 101 years later before they paired the lyrics and the music together. And the actual music was written by anybody know, you musicians? Mendelssohn, right. Felix Mendelssohn, a German composer, put the happy festive tune that we know wasn't what Charles had in mind, but God had something else in mind. So last week we did O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and that was a little uh, more sad. This one is one of the most celebrative uh, candles, carols that we have. So here's Hark the Herald Angels Sing, first stanza, which talks about glory to the newborn king. And so it comes right out of Luke chapter 2, and I want to read several scriptures to you today to show you not only where this carol lyrics come from, but it really tells a powerful theological story. So Luke chapter 2, we're going to go to that as soon as we get done staring at Charles. Or you can turn there in your Bible to Luke chapter 2, verse 10. The unique birth announcement. The angel said to the, this is to the shepherds, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, which we hear as Christ. The Christ and Messiah are the same word. Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of angels, a heavenly host, appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Or what I learned it as peace and goodwill toward men. So really I like the translation those on whom his favor rests, because it's really about God favoring us. It's not just goodwill, God's thinking good thoughts about us, but he's favoring us. So the first stanza of Hark the Herald Angels Sing is really about Jesus' birth, and Jesus' birth is about peace and reconciliation in this carol. So here we go. Here's those lyrics that you can see. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. Of course, what does hark mean? But... Listen, just, it's not complicated. Listen, a huge announcement is what this is saying. And don't you think it's fitting that the most important birth in history was announced by supernatural beings? And there were a whole bunch of them. But it kind of makes you wonder, you know, and I sit and think about things like this. um, Why not have a few signs, just a little bit of extra help for the angels? Because, you know, it may be a nice big earthquake. Maybe a volcano erupting. Okay, maybe that's too much. It might hurt people. How about a comet in the sky that would announce Jesus' birth? And yet we didn't get anything. But there was this star in a whole other sermon we could talk about. There was a highly unusual conjunction of stars and movement of stars over the period right around Jesus' birth that was probably what attracted the Persian astronomers to come and seek him out. So there was some heavenly sign, but it wasn't a huge, like, glowing comet. Maybe an eclipse would have gotten the world's attention, or something, thunder and lightning at the very least. Just something to say, except this, you know, off in this obscure field, here we have a handful of lowly shepherds 
and this huge angel choir. And, you know, there can't have been more than a dozen shepherds, probably many fewer. And it says, you know, the hosts of heavens, there's tens of thousands of angels. Why such a big choir for just a couple of shepherds, right? Do you ever think about that? But this was what God was doing. It's like, you know, he's not doing it all for us. He's doing it for him to say, here I am. Look at what I'm going to do. And he proclaims with this huge heavenly choir. I love that picture, which kind of gives this idea. It could have just like filled the sky. Can you imagine seeing this, all this glowing creatures and, and all of the drama that was associated? But it was all in this obscure field to a few lowly shepherds. And why not just to a few lowly shepherds, but why shepherds? These guys are at the bottom of the social pecking order. Shepherds weren't trusted. They couldn't give testimony in court. They weren't allowed in the temple. Kind of ironic since they're raising the lambs that are going to be sacrificed in the temple that the sheep herders can't be allowed in. Not very fair, is it, Dean? Where's Dean? Where'd you go? Yeah, there you are. Should we let you read the sheep thing? Because, you know, he raises sheep. And so here they are. They... We don't think that now we know what De- that Dean is a stand-up great guy and because he raises sheep doesn't make him a person of low character, but that's what they thought back then. And so for the angels to come and announce to these shepherds, it would be like, let's say the king of England has his firstborn son, which we now know is Prince Charles. Imagine if Prince Charles was born, and so the king of England says, go off to East London to the docks and and invite a few of the, the, the longshoremen who are unloading cargo ships. Let's just, let, let's just go tell the longshoremen of East London. Or let's tell some of the street sweepers you know, in, in the poor part of town or up in Manchester, industrial places, and let them come to Buckingham Palace and come and visit the child. You kind of get the idea of how out of character that would be, and that's what this picture was. Huge choir, heavenly celestial beings, few little people that were on the bottom of the social pecking order, out in an obscure field, no big dramatic signs to announce the royal birth. These were just average, blue-collar kind of guys, just working out in the fields, working people. And they did nothing to deserve this honor. They didn't earn it by being at the bottom of the pecking order. They, it was just what God chose to do because none of us deserves what he gives to us, even at Christmas. When people were in a survey asked, who in the Christmas story do you most identify with? Their answer, about a third of them said, the shepherds. Because they're common, average, everyday people. And none of us often feel like we're very important, so the shepherds become a great perspective of what we can focus on. Here's nobody just going about doing their blue-collar job, and God shows up to give them the greatest announcement the world has ever heard. can imagine. What about you? Is God willing to tell you things? Because you don't earn it and deserve it. So it's fitting. Charles Wesley's carol goes on to say in the third phrase of, of Hark Your Herald Angels Sing, Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Imagine that night. Imagine that scene. So does the birth of Christ still stir in you a sense of triumph? 
do you still look at it in, in awe or has it lost some of its awe? Are you feeling a sense of triumph this, e- this season? Even if some things are not going quite so well, they're not all smooth and, and easy, but you still feel no matter what, there's a sense of triumph because we're remembering what happened 2,000 years ago that the king of the universe was built, was born this day and built all the world and the universe that we see. This is who came to our earth. Have you lost that awe? Does it become so even, commonplace, and just how everything is supposed to be every December? Or is there that something special? Well, that's the beginning, the first stanza, the narrative first stanza, and then John Charles Wesley, sorry, provides a theology lesson. Now, so he kind of announces the birth, but now he's going to go into some deep things. And by the way, if you ever ask somebody, what's your favorite Christmas carol? And if they do say, hark, carol, the angels sing, then you can look at the lyrics and you can go through some of what we're about to cover because this is basically a gospel presentation in this carol. So stanza two from the narrative stanza of his birth. And by the way, you know, often in that day, there were a lot of people who were not very educated. In fact, many were illiterate. And so the way that they learned some of the theology, I mentioned one time about the stained glass that um, it was in churches that tells stories about the Bible, but the singing of hymns talked about theology. And so they taught the theology often through what they sang and learned about what things were. And so Charles Wesley, this was not lost on him. And so he provided a theology lesson in many of his hymns. Here's how one guy put it. He says that the hymns were a way people were led into truth by the gentle hand of melody and rhyme. I kind of like, isn't that kind of neat to think about learning? that? Do you, do you ever stop when you're singing these songs and these carols and look at the lyrics and think about them? Think about what you're singing and think about what it's teaching you and what it's calling you toward. So verse 2, stanza 2, who Jesus Christ is, is what we're going to find. And he's going to be fully God and fully man. So here's the first line of Hark the Herald Angels Sing of stanza 2. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. So the everlasting Lord, the word everlasting is pretty key there because it teaches Jesus' deity. He came from heaven, but he has been in heaven forever. He pre-existed coming to earth, and he pre-existing the creation of the earth because he, in John 1, was around to help create it. And so John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, which referred to Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it says in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, So we have the deity of Jesus in the first line, and now we have the virgin birth, Isaiah 7, 14, which we looked at last week. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. So the angel Gabriel would quote this verse from Isaiah 7, 14 to Mary, that this was the prophetic fulfillment of that. And so it's a virgin birth. And then in the next line of the carol, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, 
Look at this line. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So now we have the incarnation. Fully God, deity, veiled in flesh. But the Godhead is veiled in flesh now. So where did Charles Wesley get that? Well, it goes on in John 1.14, and it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And Paul would also teach this truth in Colossians chapter 2.9. These verses, by the way, are all in your outline. So he says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So do you kind of get the idea that this carol is theologically dense? There's a lot of stuff packed into these verses that we sing. And it's so easy just to sing them and not really think about them. But these are powerful, revealing words about who Jesus Christ is. So when you're in a conversation with someone, go, you know, every Christmas, if you go to church, you probably are going to sing this carol. Look at what you're singing. This is what it's about. No, no, no. Jesus is just a great guy, a good image, a good influence, a good example. It's not what Charles Wesley is saying, is it? This is God himself taking on flesh, born of a virgin, to be born in our world, fully human, fully God. Catholic writer Henry Nouwen describes a nativity scene that was placed under a church altar. He said there were these little characters, three small little wooden carved characters, primitively carved, no mouths, no eyes or ears, just the shapes, and there were no, not even as big as a human hand hardly, and they were placed under an altar. He says, then a beam of light shines on the three figures, and it projects up onto the wall. These images, these carvings, have an image of the tiny Mary and Joseph and the Christ child. And they become large, hopeful shadows that are cast on the wall, chasing away all of the darkness and the doubt. Because it reminds us that on the walls of our world, God shined his shadow. And with the radiant beam, without that radiant beam of light that was shining onto those figures, they would not be seen. But light changes everything. The light of the world was born and it changed everything. So does the light of Christmas shine in your heart to change everything? Or is the nativity scene just a shadow of Christmas that we remember characters in a nice story from long ago, this time of year, every year? So how does that light impact you? How has that light come into your heart and changed you? And how could that light this season help you understand just a little bit more about Christmas than you've ever understood before? That's the light of Jesus shining. The God, the veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, the incarnate deity. So stanza three. So that's who Jesus Christ is in stanza two. And now stanza three is what he came to do. And that's to redeem mankind. So here's the first line of stanza three. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Prince of peace is an important title. It's Jesus is mentioned as Messiah in this. So Isaiah 9, 6, which was recognized by the rabbis as a messianic passage, says he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. 
So just to say Jesus was some great guy and he brought peace to the world and all of that by, by trying to encourage people to live better misses the point that Isaiah 9 said, this is Messiah, this is Christ, the God himself, the anointed one. He's not just a good guy, he's God. And he's taking on these messianic titles. And so you don't really get a middle ground. Either he is the Lord and God of who he says he is, or if he's just some nice guy, then he's lying to everybody and duping them to try to trick them. So you don't really have a middle ground where I kind of believe in Jesus, I believe he's good, and maybe he was God, maybe not. But the important thing is that we all live according to our hearts. You don't really get this middle ground. In scripture, it's very clear. And so Isaiah 9 clearly identifies the Messiah with the title Prince of Peace. And Charles Wesley picked up on that. And then the next line in that stanza three, Hail the Son of Righteousness. That came from Malachi. <clears throat> Excuse me, chapter four, verse two. It says, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise. So, here we have the son of righteousness, another title that was used in Malachi, and that's where he drew it from. So Charles Wesley goes on to say, light and life to all he brings. We go back to John 1.4. Of Jesus, it says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. So again, we have the idea of light. Here we have darkness in John chapter 1, and the darkness is pushed away by the light. And this contrast, this battle of light and darkness that goes on and identifies Jesus Christ as the light that comes into the world. And not just light to show things, but it's light to show life and how to live life. So Jesus came into a dark world as light to change everything. Some say, well, you know what, following Jesus is kind of boring. You know, it's okay at Christmas, but you know, it gets dull life. I have more interesting things I want to do. But what John chapter 1 is saying is that if he's the light and he's the life, how in the world can you live life without that light? You will never really see true life. You might think you're seeing it, but your dull and boring accusation is false because Jesus is the light and only Real life can only be found in him. How will you understand how to respond to the vital issues of today that you encounter in people's lives without that light, without that life to say, here's how we live life. And then he goes on and he pulls back out of Malachi, risen with healing in his wings. Malachi, the verse 4-2 we already read, but here's the rest of it. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. So Jesus came to heal from sin's penalty. And of course, risen means resurrected. So we have all these Old Testament images that Charles Wesley just took and pulled key issue images from the Old Testament and attached them to Jesus when he wrote this Christmas carol. Stanza three also tells us about victory over death. Born that man no more may die, Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. So stanza two, who Jesus Christ is, stanza three, this is what he came to do, redeem mankind. And so born to give them second birth, which of course comes out of John 3, 3, where Jesus says you must be born again. But we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, which also talks about this victory over death. 
we touched on this also last week. So verses 20 and 22, <coughs> excuse me, that's a little different in your notes. I made a bit of a change in case you're looking just this verses 20 and 22. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So we are no longer spiritually dead. We are now, as we say, born again. Born a second time spiritually, not physically, as Nicodemus struggled to understand. But there's a spiritual life. And it says in John, sorry, Charles Wesley's hymn, born to raise the sons of earth and born to give them second birth. And so the carol teaches the clear purpose of Jesus' coming was to redeem mankind. And that's what the peace on earth really means, not just a nice holiday feeling. A few years ago, a cookbook was recalled. Now, how's that for a weird recall? Airbags get recalled, cars get recalled, baby strollers get recalled, baby seats get recalled. But who has ever heard of a cookbook getting recalled? But that's the publisher looked and saw that there was a problem and said, bring it back to where you bought it because there was a recipe in there that left out a key ingredient and the publisher realized that if someone followed those directions exactly, the recipe, and left out that ingredient, the recipe could actually blow up in their face. Who would think? But, you know, cooking is, by the way, chemistry, so I suppose it's possible. If you're a chemist, you could explain how that works. But imagine, you don't put an ingredient in there, you forget, and it's like putting vinegar and baking soda, maybe it bubbles or causes trouble. But here's the picture. Forget the cookbook, except that God gives us a cookbook. God gives us his word. Here's the cookbook for life. Now, what happens if you leave out some of the ingredients? Consequences. Consequences. Your life could blow up. And so you find all kinds of problems in the world because people leave out ingredients. Or how about this one? It's like, well, the world tells you, yeah, this is outdated. You know, this is for another society that was, that was ancient, not for a modern society. So we have to add some ingredients or you won't really be happy and successful. So you add ingredients. But, you know, if you've ever cooked something and you add too much, or you think, hey, how would this work? in the recipe, you might ruin it. So the image, the picture that we're trying to present with this cookbook illustration, God has given us the ingredients that make life worth living. And we can leave them out or we can follow them. And we can say, God, show me how I can deal with, I'm feeling depressed this time of year. I'm feeling anxiety with all the things coming at me. We have a lot of family conflict. And so, how am I supposed to deal with that? I look in the, the ingredient cookbook, the Bible. There's a lot of suicide, by the way, during the Christmas season because too many of us are following the wrong recipes for life. God says, here's the recipe. Find forgiveness, find purpose through Jesus Christ, and then live according to the principles that are in this book. So how are you doing? What recipe are you following? Some of the Bible, some of the world, some of your own things that you think ought to be. How's that working for you? Have you left out any of the God ingredients? 
wondering why your life doesn't feel as fulfilled? Because if you leave Jesus out as the central ingredient of all of your life, not just your church part of your life, you may find the results will blow up in your face. So we come back full circle to the first word of today's carol. Hark, listen. Are you listening to the message of Christmas right now? God himself has come. Salvation is yours. You can have a second birth. But this time it can be spiritual. Do you need to be reconciled to God and experience peace on earth that's really peace in your heart that isn't dependent on circumstances and mercy that you know when you mess up, God forgives you, that no matter what you've done, you can be forgiven? Do you need that full catalog of truths that this carol lists for your life? Could you go back and look at those lyrics? Because we're going to sing verses 2 and 3 as when we close the sermon in a minute. But I want you to look at what the meaning of what you're singing is now that we've talked about it. Let's pray. And I'll invite the worship team to come on up. Lord God, may we hear Charles Wesley's words and sing them, Lord, with the true, incredible depth of meaning that they have. And not just be a nice-sounding carol that Felix Mendelssohn, we like the tune, but may we remember the words. And they remind us at Christmas who you are, that you came onto this earth to die for us. Not just be born and have everybody feel good for a month, but you came, Lord, to change our lives, to bring light into the darkness, and that light has changed everything. You only showed a shadow of who you were in human form, and there's so much more that you want to show us about who you are. Help us to find that meaning. In this Christmas season, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.